Welcome to Soul Food, a podcast ministry of Calvary Chapel, Princeton, West Virginia. Let's be honest this morning. One of the difficult things about our relationship with God is that sometimes He doesn't act accordingly to what we desire. Sometimes He acts in ways that we don't understand simply because we don't see the entire picture the way that our Father does. And the truth of the matter is, if we truly believed that everything really works out for the good to those that love God, that wouldn't be as big a problem. But sometimes we don't. And that's when our anxiety levels can start to rise. There will be times in life where it can be hard to believe in the words of that old TV show that Father Knows Best. I heard a pastor tell a story about taking his two little girls, ages four and seven, who went to the store to buy them new bicycles. He found a nice tricycle for his four-year-old and she was thrilled. That is, until she saw the big bike that her seven-year-old sister was getting. She began pleading her case. I want a big bike too, Daddy. When he told her that she was too small, she began to cry. Her father tried to explain that she was just too small for a big bike, but she was having none of it. Through her tears, she replied, Well, if I can't have a new bike, then I want a new daddy. (laughs) This is kind of the sentiment of the people following Christ in John chapter 6. He is now starting to ask hard things of them. And for the majority of them, they could have just as well replied, Well, if I can't have salvation on my terms, then I want a new Savior. Look at verse 52 with me. The Jews therefore quarreled among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? And Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Now, to an audience who took great care to remove any blood from any kind of meat they consumed, he said, Most assuredly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. And at first glance, this doesn't sound like the gospel according to John. It sounds more like the gospel according to Jeffrey Dahmer. (laughs) It would seem that very often Jesus deliberately made the gospel difficult to accept rather than easy. Now this is something that today's seeker-friendly approach would find extremely strange. Because in that model, you don't want your church to do or say anything that might make a sinner uncomfortable in your midst. Don't get me started on this. Listen, if an individual is in danger of splitting hell wide open, they better hope they feel uncomfortable in church. And if that person didn't, I would find another church. I love you guys, but I'm always going to tell you the truth. Because one day I'm going to have to stand in front of God Almighty and give an account for the people that He placed under me. The stakes are way too high to give you anything but the Word of God. As long as I'm your pastor... 
We won't be having lasers, fog machines, or prophesying poodles. I love you way too much for that. This is a church. This isn't a moose club minus the kegs of beer. But do you know what happens if you do teach the unadulterated Word of God? The exact same thing that happened in verse 52. Those who are unregenerate are going to start pushing back and complaining. Now why would they complain? Because the Lord is going to ask them to lay down their lives at the foot of the cross and go in a completely new direction called the highway of holiness. And to do this, we have to die to ourselves. But what does it mean to die to ourselves? What does it mean that we are to be crucified with Christ? Simply put, it means that we are to say no to anything that lies outside the will of God for our lives. This is also true before conversion. What do I mean? We must say no to any plans we may have for earning God's favor and instead receive the gift of eternal life in Christ. But it's also true after our conversion. For the same principles that operated in coming to Christ continue in the Christian life. We must say no to all of our personal plans and desires, or at least be willing to say no. So that God's will, rather than our own, may be accomplished. Now here's an important question. I've said that we must say no or at least be willing to say no to anything that is contrary to the will of God in any of our lives. But how do we know when we have really said no? This can be trickier than what you might think since our hearts and minds are clever and deceptive. It is so easy to fool ourselves. How do we know when we have really said no to that which is contrary to the will of God in our lives? The answer is when we have stopped complaining. We covered this a little bit a few weeks ago. The word of God has a good word for what we do when we have really not stopped complaining. It's the word murmur. That is what the people of Israel did when they were in the wilderness and did not like what God was doing with them. It is also the word used by the ungrateful servants in Christ's parable about the owner of the vineyard. When they murmured that he had paid those who came at the end of the day the same wages as though who had bore the heat of the entire day. What is a good definition of murmuring? Murmuring is expressing rebellion against something by mumbling under one's breath. It is called murmuring because that is what murmuring sounds like to anyone who is listening. That is what we can do with God if we're not careful. God tells us to do something and the first thing we do is attempt to stare him down. We want to see if he really means it. And after we find out that he really does mean it, If we are not careful, we can have the tendency to murmur. And the reason that we murmur is that very often we really do not want to do what God wants us to do. 
If we do do that, then we are in the company of that great crowd in verse 52 who only supported Jesus when He gave them what they wanted. But what happens when He asks us to do something that is either hard to understand or hard to accomplish? Look at verse 54. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. This truth was illustrated in the first Passover. The Israelites have been instructed to sacrifice a lamb on behalf of the whole household. They were to apply its blood to the doorpost of the house and then prepare the meat for consumption. And after that, they were to remain inside as the death angel descended upon Egypt. Those who did not apply the blood mourned the loss of their first sons. But those who appropriated the symbol of atonement to their homes were spared. As they ate the flesh of the lamb, the death angel passed over their homes. I'd like us to look at that a little bit more, so I've had Ray Ray included in the slides. This is Exodus 12.3. I'll just offer a brief comment after each verse. It says, Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, they are to each one take a lamb for themselves, according to their father's household, a lamb for each household. Here we see that the net of salvation grows ever wider in Scripture. In Genesis 4, Abel offered a lamb for a man. Here in Exodus 12, the children of Israel were to offer a lamb for a family. In Exodus 29, the priests were to offer a lamb for a nation. And then in John chapter 1, we see a lamb who came to be offered for the sins of the entire world. Next verse, please. Now, if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Please notice that in verse 3, the Lord speaks of a lamb. In verse 4, he speaks of the lamb, but in verse 5, it is referred to as your lamb. In this, we see progressive salvation and revelation. Yes, Jesus is a lamb, but he's more than a lamb. He's not just one of the great teachers or moral people. No, he is the lamb. Yet more than that, for him to be your savior, he must become your lamb. Verse 5 also tells us that he must be unblemished. And history has proven that. Not only do all believers stand in unison pronouncing the white-hot holiness and purity of Jesus, even his enemies had to admit that he was completely free from guilt. Just listen to a few eyewitnesses and their appraisals of Jesus. He's done nothing wrong, said the thief crucified next to him. Truly this man must be the Son of God, said the Roman centurion. I find no fault in him, said Pontius Pilate, as he nervously washed his hands. And perhaps the most telling came from Judas, who was the one who betrayed him when he bemoaned, I have betrayed innocent blood. Jesus was indeed the lamb without blemish. 
We will now see in our study how in John how it coincides with the book of Exodus. Look at Exodus 12:8 with me. They shall eat the flesh the same night, roasted with fire, and they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. We're going to see later on in this study in verse 66 that confused by his words, it was after Jesus said, if you do not eat of my body, you have no life in you. The Bible says that many followed him no more. On this side of the resurrection, we understand that we have to absorb and assimilate Jesus into our lives. We must allow him to rule and reign from within. A principle of which Passover and communion are now pictures. But what was the importance of that? Exodus 12, 12 answers that. For I will go through the land of Egypt on that night and will strike down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And against all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. After declaring he would pass through the land and smite the firstborn of man and beast, God gives us just one reason. I am the Lord. And you know what, my beloved? That is all the reason that he needs. I am the Lord. If he doesn't want to, he doesn't have to explain diddly squat to mankind. And I don't even know what diddly squat means. I hope it's not obscene. (laughs) They won't tell you this on TV, but the human race is not as powerful and important as what they would lead you to believe. All we are, in and of ourselves, is a bunch of animated dirt. I think it's good to keep that in mind. He is the potter, and we are the clay. I love Isaiah 2.22, where it addresses the arrogance and pomposity of mankind. In it, the Lord says, Stop regarding man, whose breath of life is in his nostrils, for why should he be esteemed? What is that saying? The only thing keeping any man or woman alive is the breath that God has allowed them to keep breathing. That means that no one truly has any control over their life. All their power exists only while they breathe, and their breath is just in their nostrils. It may soon cease, and so no one should confide in so frail and fragile thing as the breath of man. Let me make that a little bit clearer. If God chooses to remove the breath of life from any human being, that person will drop dead right where they stand. And they can do absolutely nothing about it. And that is why it is of critical importance that we are all ready to meet God. Let's get back to Exodus. This is Exodus 12:13. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you live. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. There is one major thing I want us to notice in this verse. It wasn't the expense of the house, nor the righteousness of the people within the house, which mattered. The only issue was was the blood applied to the house. But the shed blood alone was not enough to save their families. The children of Israel had to actually apply the blood to the doorpost of their own homes. Nothing has changed. 
We still need to apply that blood to the doorpost of our hearts. Jesus said in Revelation 3.20, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and him with me. Just as the blood needed to be applied to the doorpost individually, so now each man or woman must open the door to his own heart personally. If you've never opened that door, I pray this will be the day because only Jesus can truly bring guidance and satisfaction. Believe me, I've tried about everything else this world had to offer. Only Christ is sufficient to help us navigate this cruel and depraved world. In the words of the hymn, God me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. Bread of heaven, feed me till I want no more. Amen. Only he can satisfy. Back to John, verse 55, please. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink indeed. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who feeds on me will live because of me. This is the bread which came down from heaven, not as your fathers ate the manna and are dead. He who eats this bread will live forever. These things he said in the synagogue as he taught in Capernaum. Here in verses 55 through 58, Jesus is just reiterating the absolute importance on feeding on him to have spiritual life. Verse 59 tells us that he was teaching this not on a hillside or from a boat, but he was sharing this truth from the synagogue. Now we know that at least hundreds were serious enough to consider him their rabbi and would have actively supported a movement to make him their king. But Jesus knew that theirs was the kind of fickle devotion that sprouts quickly and then withers suddenly in the heat of persecution. Look at verse 60. Therefore many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, This is a hard saying. Who can understand it? The fickle disciples describe Jesus' teaching as scleros, which literally means dry, hard, or rough. We get our medical term sclerosis from it, as in multiple sclerosis. Figuratively, the term describes something or someone as unyielding or not received without discomfort. Distressing news or challenging concepts would be called hard. But in all honesty, Jesus' teaching wasn't difficult to understand. It was just difficult to accept. The word Jesus uses does not mean that it's hard to understand. It means hard to tolerate. And I can assure you, many of the people there thought that he was at the best crazy, or at the worst, a deceiver and a heretic to what they considered to be the true faith. And their reply to him was, this is a hard saying. But once again, in reality, it wasn't hard to understand. It was just hard to accept. Because the things that Jesus was sharing went against their religion and their tradition. If there is one thing that we must not only expect, but also accept, is some people really don't want to know the truth. Well, they may act like they are concerned with what is right and what is wrong, 
but it's just an intellectual exercise to them. And no matter how clearly and honestly you share the truth, it will do them no good because deep down they're satisfied with their lifestyle of sin. Just like this out so clearly in Luke chapter 7, it applied back then and it applies today. And the Lord said, To what then shall I liken the men of this generation? What are they like? They're like children sitting in a marketplace and calling to one another saying, We played the flute for you and you did not dance. We mourned to you and you did not weep. For John the Baptist came neither eating bread nor drinking wine and you said, He has a demon. The son of man comes eating and drinking. You say, look, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Now here's the punch of that whole passage. But wisdom is justified by her children. What does that mean? Well, Jesus compared that generation to people who were childish, not childlike. And nothing that could be done would please them. And I found out that people who really want to avoid the truth about themselves can always find something in any messenger to dislike. This is one way that they justify themselves. But God's wisdom is not frustrated by the arguments of the wise and the prudent. It is demonstrated in the changed lives of those who believe. The wisdom of the Lord's way is not seen intellectually nor argued logically mainly. Instead, it is seeing the transformation of people practically. Look at the children of the Lord who are now born-again believers. And you see people who were once strung out on drugs, hooked on pornography, or held captive by materialism. But now they are in the process of being perfected in sanctification. God's wisdom is justified in changed lives. Let the unbelievers argue all that they want. The irrefutable fact is that human lives are changed. But we see that not everyone truly wants the truth. F.F. Bruce says, What they wanted, he could not give. What he offered, they would not receive. Many people admit to wanting a Savior. However, just what kind of Savior they desire depends upon what kind of crisis they are hoping to escape. For instance, people struggling with loneliness want a companion. People suffering an identity crisis want someone to give them meaning. The hungry want a provider. The oppressed want a champion. The discontented a revolutionary and the hopeless an inspiration. It is interesting as an insight into the problems of our own times that in answering those who were in conflict over his teaching, Jesus did not try to tone down the teaching to make it more palatable. If anything, he did just the opposite. The reason lies in the fact that Christ's teachings were hard to accept. And so long as Christ's followers could not understand him, they stayed and asked questions. It was when they did understand him that they went elsewhere. They left because what they heard was contrary to their own views and they could not accept it. Here it and the parallel statement, who can understand it, describe Jesus' statement not as incomprehensible but as simply being unacceptable. 
They rejected his words as objectionable and offensive. Like those who dismissed Jesus' teaching outright, they were scandalized by his claim as coming down from heaven. And his contention that he was the only answer to mankind's spiritual need and his call for them to eat his flesh and drink his blood. In reality, however, what shut them out of the kingdom was not Jesus' teaching being unacceptable, but rather their unbelieving and unaccepting hearts. Their reaction is typical of all false disciples. As long as they perceive Jesus as being a source of healing, free food and deliverance from enemy oppression, the self-serving disciples would flock to him. But when he demanded that they actually acknowledge their spiritual bankruptcy, confess their sin, and commit themselves to him as the only source of salvation, they became offended, and as we will see, most of them are going to leave. Like countless other false disciples throughout the history of the church, they followed Jesus for what they thought they could get from him. True disciples, on the other hand, come to Christ poor in spirit, mourning over their sin, and hungering and thirsting after the righteousness that only he can provide. Our Lord left nothing to doubt when he identified the elements of true discipleship. Do you remember what he said in Luke 9.23? If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what does it profit a man if he gains the entire world? and loses or forfeits his own soul. False disciples do not follow Christ for who he is, but because of what they want from him. They, know, they have no problem viewing him as a baby in the manger at Christmas, or a social reformer with a broad message of love and tolerance, or the ideal human everyone should try to emulate or sadly even a source of health, wealth, and worldly happiness. But they are unwilling to embrace the biblical Jesus. He was the God-man who fearlessly rebuked sinners and warned them of eternal hell. And that salvation from that hell comes only through believing in his words. As we finish up this morning, the main thing I want you to leave here with is the knowledge that Jesus is the only hope for mankind. And anything that we try to replace him with will ultimately not satisfy. In his book, No Doubt, John Orberg writes, In the early 20th century, a hobo named Cliff Edwards was barely staying alive. But he pinned his hopes on the one great gift that he had, a voice that could slide up three octaves with pure quicksilver magic. He started singing at a restaurant and was finally discovered. He became one of the great vaudeville and Broadway stars of the 1920s. For his era, he was as big as a person could be. And if you picture a 1920s singer carrying a ukulele, you're venerating his memory. Edwards got what he hoped for, but it wasn't what he wanted. And he began the long slide down alcoholism, gambling, tax troubles, bankruptcy, and finally drug addiction. 
He died forgotten, broke, and on welfare in 1971. He ended like that even though he outlived Janis Joplin, Jimi Hendrix, and his own fame by many decades. I have a soft spot for him because of the last big movie part he got before his long final descent. When his incomparable voice gave life to that role of a plucky, chirpy, irrepressible character named Jiminy Cricket. You've probably heard him sing it. When you wish upon a star, your dreams come true. When I read that, I thought, when you wish upon a star, your dreams come true. But for Cliff Edwards, they didn't. He got what he wished for, but in the end, found it to be empty. Not only was he bankrupt in finances, he was also bankrupt in soul. I wonder this morning, what are you hoping and wishing for? No matter what it is, if the Lord is not in the center of it, it will never truly satisfy you. And so I urge and plead with you this morning to turn your life completely over to Him. He alone can give us a life that matters here and an eternity beyond all of our wildest dreams. Do that today, Father. You know every heart represented in this room. None of us are perfect, Lord, starting with me. Nobody knows that more than I do. But, Lord, you want the very best for everyone in here. And I know, Lord, after all these decades of serving you, that the best thing is always serving you. It is in that we can have purpose and joy in life. Speak to every heart, I pray. In Christ's name, amen.